Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Footy Prime, the podcast with Danny Dicchio, Craig Forrest, and James Sharman. Today, we welcome Owen O'Callaghan, journalist extraordinaire. For Dan Wong and myself, Jeff Cole, let's get the party started. Thank you, JC. Uh, I did prefer last week's uh, Scottish impersonation. That was a bit of a classic, but we'll take this one. Thank you very much. Should be a great show today, as mentioned. Coming up very shortly, Owen O'Callaghan, uh, broadcaster, journalist, filmmaker. Remember Celtic Soul with Jay Baruchel? Yes. Remember that? Great documentary. Recommend that one. And uh, a new book coming out about a certain Mr. Roy Keane, uh, a fellow who the two guys beside me played against on many an occasion. Uh, but fellas, before we get to, to Owen, since last we spoke, Real Madrid, crown champions in Spain, uh, we saw Leo Messi have a bit of a meltdown and then win the Golden Boot again. Uh, the top four in England is going to go down to likely the final weekend of the season. Relegation might. There's, there's some games this week. It's getting confusing. Uh, Watford fired. Nigel Pearson, my good God, what a gong show that place is right now. But lots going on. Later in today's show, we'll get to some, some listener questions, okay? But is there anything in particular that stood out from last show to this show? Well, the Nigel Pearson was one for me. Uh, not that it shocked me because Watford is what they do. Um, but with two games left, Teach? Shambolic. I mean, shambolic, right? And, and they're... They're above relegation zone, but they do things differently there. Very differently. And they've brought two young guys in who I played uh, alongside. I played with one of them, Graham Stack, the goalkeeper, and Hayden Mullins is put in charge. I just, I, I don't understand the philosophy and what you're trying to do. Two games to go, and you are deep in the mire. You're hoping that other teams don't pick up points and you don't go down. But nothing really surprised me with the Pozzo family at Watford. They've been doing it for years in Italy. So nothing really surprised me. The the big surprise for me over the last week is the resurgence of Arsenal Football Club Shams. Beat Liverpool, the champions, and then they beat Man United, uh, not Man United, they beat um, Man City at the weekend in the FA Cup semi-final with a very, very good performance. And you can slowly start seeing how Arteta is turning the mindset of these players. He, he's not changing them as players, but he's changing the mindset. And it's good to see an Arsenal team battling, defending, throwing themselves on the line and just, I don't know, we haven't seen that from an Arsenal team from early 90s to, mm-hmm. to mid-90s, late 90s when they were very successful. However, that game could have gone differently. It could have gone differently, yeah. I mean, Man City on any other 
day. Hit two or three. We want to cut two or three. Yeah. But good on him. I like the goalkeeper too. But it is weird talking about the uh, the uh, the gusto and the bravado of the Arsenal spine against the soft underbelly of Man City. How times change. Incredible, <laughs> isn't it, really? But you're right. Arteta's come in and perhaps if not for being Liverpool, they wouldn't have won that game either. The confidence that must have instilled in them, um, albeit in this, this strange truncated season. But... Apparently, Arteta might be the real deal in a couple of uh, additions this off-season. And Arsenal might not quite be a title contender just yet, but certainly back where they belong. And if you're a Gunners fan out there, you must be very, very happy. Maybe Arteta's you the new You have a lot Vanger. of uh, Gunner fans yeah. in your family yeah. or friends? I love Arsenal. My, my oldest son's an Arsenal fan. I, I, I liked Arsenal. I watched Arsenal a lot when I was a, a youngster. I used to stand on the clock and my uncle used to work for him. But... There's, there's been a change needed, and uh, we've spoken about this either on Sportsnet or on the podcast. Wenger kind of stayed a little bit too long. Fantastic servant for the club. Would like to have seen him moved upstairs, but they needed a change. Didn't work with Unai Emery, who I think is a very good coach as well. But now they've brought in Arteta, and listen, it's still early days, and even he's come out and said, we haven't done anything yet. But just changing the mentality of that group and how they play for one another is good to see. And as you said, um, the goalkeeper, is it Martinez, who's come in, has done a fantastic job. He's been mm-hmm. there 10 years, that goalkeeper. He's made something like under 30 appearances for Arsenal Football Club in all competitions. Mm-hmm. And then you, you're looking at certain players that are starting. David Luiz was fantastic at the weekend. But the big key thing for me for Arsenal, as well as bringing in hopefully one or two players to supplement the squad, is keeping hold of Aubameyang. And if they do that, then I think they can move in the right direction for the next two or three years under Arteta. But they have to keep those high-profile players. Yeah, there's a there's a Coutinho-Genduzzi swap deal in the works as well, apparently, if you believe the, the various rumour mills out there. Coutinho would be a, a great addition, obviously. I quite like Genduzzi though. To be honest with you, he's got that kind of confidence term. But you talk about Arteta and the way he played the game. Coutinho, um, somewhat similar, uh, perhaps more edge from Arteta. But yeah, it's it's coming along. And if they can retain Aubameyang, who at 31 years of age, though he's 31, w- would you try and get into a long-term deal? Or I mean, he wants one final payday, right? You don't want to give a 31-year-old a five-year deal, do you? Well, it all depends on what their situation is and how they can retain him. They might have to bite the bullet on him being a little bit on the old side of his contract. But yeah, his resale value at the end of a three or four year contract isn't going to be isn't going to be uh, as much. So he's going to be looking for a, a long term contract at this stage of his career. I would think they also have a philosophy at Arsenal where once you're over a certain age, you don't get anything more than a two year deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, even David Luiz just. Um, signed a new year, a new deal. He wanted two years, but Arsenal said, "You're over, over 31. You only get a one-year deal." So, are they going to change that for the likes of Aubameyang, who I, I think, if he's offered a three-year deal at Arsenal on the current wages he's on, he's on the top wages at the club, he takes it. But if Real Madrid or Barcelona are coming in, like is rumored, then you have to ask that yourself as a player: Do you want to go and play in Champions League and win it? be a top club who's competing for a championship title or you staying at the rebuild the transition with Arsenal someone that used to feast upon Arsenal games was of course Roy Keane in those great matches United against Arsenal back in the day which is a, a superb segue to our, our guest today 
as mentioned earlier, Owen O'Callaghan, broadcaster. I remember Fox Soccer News. I know Beach and I do. We were on it once upon a time as well, eh? And that wonderful virtual set. But good times, <laughs> regardless. Filmmaker, journalist, uh, and now author, Owen O'Callaghan. Owen, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. So, coming out in August, August 14th, is your new book, Keen Origins, uh, a real deep dive into the early career of, of Roy Keane. This is before he joined Manchester United, um, even before Nottingham Forest, but the Forest days where he was just a, a wonderful footballer. Now, you, you've you know, conducted dozens of interviews for this book, Owen. Um, you know a lot about him to begin with, but what did you learn about Roy Keane through writing this book? Wow, it's a difficult one. Um, I guess that the biggest thing about it is is the fact that he's been immensely consistent. I think uh, I've even been guilty of it in the past, stuff I've written, and, and you're, you kind of go down this path of this kind of complex, contradictory, contrarian type figure, and you go deep into his past and into his early years, his teenage years, and then his kind of formative professional career, and he's just always been of the same mindset you know he's always been driven in the same way he's always um called a spade a spade he's always been very forthright in his opinions uh, to the detriment certainly in those early years um of his underage international career with the republic of ireland um i think certain people were put off by uh, yeah on one hand his diminutive nature in terms of his physical size but also his his attitude um, you know, I think he he didn't mind his P's and Q's as much as everyone else was supposed to. And, and I think that that probably counted against him a little bit. Um, so I think he's he's been amazingly consistent. And, and that was one thing that that early on you kind of figure out, you think, hang on a sec. You know, there's there's a kind of a, a there's a there's a perspective that people want to have of this guy. And I don't think it's very fair because, you know, I think Keane is now known as this sort of. Um, Victor Meldrew type guy, uh, you know, he's he's out of touch with modern football and all the rest of it. And I just think he, his opinions on the game have always been the same. You know, you go back to Manchester United's training ground, you know, it was very, very simple instructions that he gave his teammates around him. It was, um, you know, very, very uh, sort of high quality was immediately expected. But, in, you know, and, that, and you know, that that was the first rule. You stepped into that club and, you know, you're, you're playing you know, one touch in a session and he's pinging balls at you because you've cost the club 30 million and it's time to prove yourself. Um, you know, that's the way he's always been. And, and he's been as forthright um, in, in a Sky Sports studio in terms of giving his opinions during games. So, you know, in, in terms of that, in terms of going back to, to his formative years, th- that's always been the case with Roy Keane. And, you know, I think it's, it's pretty impressive to be that consistent over such a long period of time. Oh, and it's, a, it's no question that he is a, a fascinating figure, and he always has been when he was playing and now when he's uh, retired and the comments he does as a punditry, a pundit as well, is he doesn't, he's not afraid of uh, speaking his mind. Now, when you write a book on somebody like this, now what is his feelings towards you for writing a book, and is it mostly positive, or did you just take everybody's word from interviews and write an honest book on those interviews and it didn't turn your decision one way or the other or opinion so i think you know i really wanted other people's opinions to do the work because i wasn't there 
And, you know, you, you, you can only trust the people who were up close with him, be it former teammates of his, former coaches, um, you know, people who were on a training pitch with him day after day, people who were socialising with him, uh, you know, quite regularly and, and getting to know the, the, the real person. So there are various moments where you kind of express a little bit of your own commentary, um, you know, in, in terms of, okay, Keane says this about this incident, but is that very fair? You know, based on all of this knowledge that we do know, maybe Keane isn't being, you know, maybe he's being a little bit um, over the top with his memories of this and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I kind of trusted the, the, the people who were there, uh, you know, during his time at Forest and even in Ireland before that, when he was on a, a government-assisted football course, uh, when he was kind of going nowhere quickly. And, you know, you, you colour that in with a large amount of archival research and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny what, it's funny how all encompassing the profile becomes, you know, it's, it's funny, like, you know, even the types of music that he was listening to at the time, the cars he was driving, the nightclubs he was going to, um, that all feeds into this profile that gets assembled. And that's really kind of what I wanted. It's, it's a portrait of a footballer as a young man, because I think that, you know, I, I, you know, in terms of, of this story, Keane is a 19-year-old who makes his professional debut at Anfield, having a couple of months beforehand being in, being in Ireland, probably contemplating where he was going with his life. And, you know, to, to have that kind of become your new path in, in life, and it, it never stops once that moment happens, once Brian Clough signs of the forest, it doesn't stop. It, it just gets uh, to be a quicker pace and it gets to be um, it, it gets to be bigger and better and, and there gets to be more of everything and suddenly you're the most expensive player in England and you're playing for the best team in the country and you're still a young man and you're at World Cups and then you become one of the greatest players to ever put on a Manchester United jersey and you're an icon and a legend and it, it's, it just it was like a, a, a massive roller coaster for Keane and he just kind of basically found himself at the front of the queue getting on the roller coaster you know it was a not, you know he obviously worked very very hard to put himself in that spot but for a long time it didn't look like it was going to happen for him you know it wasn't a, a case if he went over on a trial at 15 or 16 like that usual trajectory for a young Irish player he missed all that he went over there at 19 but he did it his own way. And I guess there's, you know, you go back to, to those early days, Keane from the very start was even unique in his own journey into football, into professional football. And I think that's, you know, from, from the very start, he's, he's basically put his own unique stamp on, on his own journey. You talk about the intensity and the anger and those traits and how it really cost him early in his career um, back in Ireland. But then he found Brian Clough or Brian Clough found Roy Keane and, if, if not for that relationship happening, do you think he would have made it in, in English football? Wow. Um, it's very, very difficult. Like, I guess, like, one aspect of the book is that, and I guess that, you know, Danny and Craig can, can, can talk about this as well. There are so many moments in your career, particularly those formative years, when things can go in a completely different direction. Um, you know, the, the basically keen story is that he's spotted playing a game in Dublin, um, a, a youth game. You know, he really, it was a game he really even shouldn't have been playing in because at that stage he was playing for a League of Ireland first division side. He was playing senior football, but he still qualified for the youth team and he went and played in this game. And you talk to players who also played in that fixture. And Keane was, you know, Keane's side were badly beaten that day. They, they lost 4 0. It was a cup replay. And, you know, the, the players that played against him that day were saying there was a scout that afternoon who spotted something in Keane. Why didn't he spot something in us? 
you know, we were the team that hockeyed Keenside 4 0. You know, we played brilliant football. The, you know, the two, our two centre midfielders absolutely dominated Roy Keane that afternoon. But for whatever reason, that scout saw something in Keane that afternoon in Dublin at Fairview Park to think, okay, this kid's got something. And that's after a, a long journey of scouts saying, nah, I'm not interested. Nah, he's too small. Um, nah, he's too opinionated. And, you know, it, there's also that cycle of being, you know, continuously let down and continuously struggling. There's only so much you can kind of keep that engine running before you lose faith in yourself. And Keane was was kind of ticking towards the end of it. You know, he's 19. He's got contemporaries who were at English clubs in, in, in Brighton or in Luton Town, and, and they seem to be making some inroads. Keane had, you know, made some appearances for Ireland underage, but not many. He wasn't a first choice there at all. He was being counted against because he was still based in Ireland. So there were some, so many things against him. And then, as you said, Charms, you know, he's spotted. Clough brings him to Forest. He signs a deal. And, you know, in, in his own opinion, he said, right, I get to Forest, maybe in 18 months I might make the bench. You know, that was his plan. Give me a year and a half. Because also there's the environment of English football at the time where you had a smaller first-team squad of basically 14 players. You know, you had a couple of substitutes and then the rest was really competitive reserve team football and then a third-string team. And, you know, it was, it was very, very, very competitive. Uh, and also, when you're 19, you didn't get opportunities to play first-team football in first division in England. It just wasn't, unless you're Ryan Giggs. You know, it just wasn't something that happened to you. So even still, when he gets to Forest, everything is, there's, there's a massive wall put up in front of him. And he's still, whatever you talk about, it, the magic ingredient, the magic formula, whatever Clough spotted in him in pre-season, watching him for 20 minutes... You know, there's a couple of uh, Steve Hodge famously gets ill on the morning of that game against uh, Liverpool at Anfield, and and Clough wants to see the Irishman, and Keane gets called up, and he doesn't just get called up. Clough puts him in the starting lineup, playing on the right right midfield, trying to man mark as best he could. John Barnes, uh, Liverpool won two 0 that night, and that was the start of Keane's career. And it's it's strange how to get to that point, you had all of these moments on the journey that could have taken him in completely different directions. You know, you look at the economic environment in Ireland at the time. Uh, you know, he's from a, a city in Cork that was absolutely ravaged by, uh, a, you know, an astonishingly poor economy, a very working class background. His father was long-term unemployed, you know, very working class. You know, what what you're, you know, wanting to become a footballer just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, how, how could you ever become a footballer from this sort of uh, background? Like, you know, what's wrong with you? Like, how, how do you think you're going to get out of this? And Keane found a way. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, it's a really it's a really remarkable story when you kind of break it down into, into the background of it and the history of it. But the, the, the influence of Clough, the influence of Nottingham Forest, if that was another manager, if Keane had to play like in a modern game under four or five different managers, a couple of caretakers in the space of three seasons, God only knows where Roy Keane would be now. So it's, it's of the moment. Um, all of these circumstances feed into that mixing bowl. And, and for what, whatever happened for, for Keane, I'm sure he's very, very grateful that those ingredients were, were, were on a recipe for him. Owen, listen, I, I've read a couple of books on, on Roy Keane and all the instances and, and the arguments, whether it be with the, the Irish FA, Irish coaches at Sunderland, uh, some of the extraordinary stories at Manchester United. But I'm really looking forward to reading this book to just get a sense of his early years. And I hope you kind of touch on that where was, was it his dream to play football at a young age? Was his dad a big figure in his life at the early ages? Because as you said, he, he left Ireland at 
18, 19 to pursue a professional career. And I, I played with many Irish boys in the youth team at QPR that came over when they were 14, 15, housed in residence. And, you know, that, that was their dream to be a professional footballer in England. And I've heard numerous stories where they, they didn't know if that was Roy Keane's dream and that was maybe holding him back a little bit in in pursuing that professional dream if, if he did have it. I know he didn't play for the national team at at uh, a younger age he, or he didn't get into many squads so he was a real outlier so just trying to get that out of you was it a dream of his did he ever was his dad like a big football man as well well Cork as an Irish city is immersed in sports culture a really really incredible sporting environment very very intense sporting environment and Keane was a died in the wool sports obsessed kid I mean academia was never for him um, you know, we've got a state examination that you do when you're about 15 called a junior certificate. Um, you've got another one when you're 18, which is the leaving certificate. Keane even managed somehow to fail his junior certificate, which is very, very difficult to do. So, uh, you know, pursuing education and, and, and universities is never again your background, you know, very working classes. You know, none of your family go to third level, you know, so Keane when he you know there's a famous story that we reference in the book the day of his confirmation when he's when he's 12 um the club he played for in cork was rockmount and he was captain of that team an absolutely beautiful beautifully talented side with with incredible players in that team Keane was captain and on the day of his confirmation he went down training even his coaches looked at him and said what are you doing here and you know he said well what you know i'm, I'm here to train you know and that, there's, a, there's that weird sort of drive in him from that age um, one of his mates, Eric Hogan, who lived close by to him and was also part of that Rockland team, he had a massive falling out with Eric Hogan uh, around 14 or 15 because Eric Hogan got a skateboard for his birthday and he wanted he missed training one night to go and play on a skateboard and Keane was like, what's, what's fucking wrong with you? You absolutely, <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? Like, you'd rather play with your skateboard and go training. And they had a massive fallout. Um, so Keane was very, very driven. But the, the, the other aspect of this is the geography of this, you know, you grew up in, in Cork. It is not a capital city. It's a long way from where the decisions are made in terms of schoolboy football in Ireland. It's very, very difficult for a guy like Keane to turn heads. Um, and I think that Keane always looked at Dublin as a bit of a symbol. Um, like, astonishingly enough, um, when Keane makes his Ireland debut in 1991, his senior Ireland debut in a friendly against Chile, the team train at Lansdowne Road the day before the game. And Keane reveals to reporters that it's his very first time at Lansdowne Road. Wow. And, you know, that's like, you know, you, you think, right, you know, you go to Ireland games, you know, as a young lad and you go supporting the team. His family didn't have that sort of money. You didn't have that sort of luxury to go off to Dublin on the train and spend a day or an overnight in Dublin to watch an Ireland team. You know, so, so Keane didn't even really have that as a background. He was, he was uh, football-obsessed, Tottenham supporter, you know, adored Glenn Hoddle. Um, and, but, but in terms of plotting a course, you know, it, it was, I'm sure it was difficult for Keane to find a way out because when he tried to get the attention of scouts, when he tried to get trials in England, even through family contacts, you know, mates of his on that Rockman team who were an astonishingly good side were getting breaks in England. At 15 or 16, they were getting trials and Keane wasn't. He, he was looked upon as being too small physically. He, he, you know, there were shortcomings. And, you know, it takes its toll on you. And, you know, when you're not getting the breaks, suddenly you're, you probably fast forward to 17 and 18 and you're thinking, have I already missed my chance here? And, and then in Keane's case, the, the big break for him 
was he signed for Cove Ramblers, which at the time in the League of Ireland system you had the Premier Division and then below that the First Division. Cove Ramblers were a First Division team and they, they signed him uh, when he was 18. But uh, simultaneously, you think of the good old 80s when, when the economies everywhere were just absolutely ravaged. There was a government training scheme um, which took people off the unemployment line and it was it was called a FOSS scheme. And it was basically an educational scheme where guys, uh, you know, male or female, had, if they've lost their job, they could go back and basically re-educate themselves. So you could go back and study three nights a week at computers. And it was kind of preparing yourself for getting back into work. And at, the, at that time, the FAI had a FOSS course. They had a football course. And they took the 20 best uh, underage footballers in Ireland and they centred them in Dublin. They've trained Monday to Friday. Uh, they played League of Ireland football, obviously, at the weekends. So you were getting professional training in Dublin, preparing yourself that, you know what, maybe if a scout sees me, maybe if I can get a break in, in England on a trial, at least I'm physically conditioned. I've had my sort of technical training done. And Roy Keane found himself on this training course for about eight months. And it bulked them up. Uh, it prepared him. And when eventually he went to Forest in February of 1990 on his first trial, all of that work, coupled with his first team experience at Cove Ramblers, playing with real men, you know, almost like a kind of a, a lower lower league level in England, uh, you kind of you, you cut your teeth. All of that rolled into almost like a new version of Roy in 1990. He was stronger. He was he was he he had a, a bit more of a hunger. He had a bit more of, of of a technical expertise. And you know, obviously those those trials in Forest, you know, it made the right impact. And then. In April, in April 1990, they they uh, they made their approach and, and he signed the deal and, and that's that that was basically what uh, how how he how he plotted the course to, to Nottingham in, in the summer of 1990. I tell you, uh, when standing next to him in the tunnel, it wasn't the biggest as you talk about, but my goodness, he was an absolute monster of a man as far as character goes. You're standing there at Old Trafford or even at Ipswich or West Ham and having him rearing everybody up and you're looking down the line of all these unbelievable players and at the end of the game did you know often wouldn't talk about Roy Keane because he wasn't you know scoring the the spectacular goals but a massive part of that structure and knew you were in a game well, every was, single time he played I was gonna say I had the pleasure in playing a, 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 against him but it wasn't really a pleasure <laughs> he would do any, anything possible to step on my Achilles, on my feet, and he just agitated people. But I loved it. I loved the way he played. I loved the demands he put on not only his fellow players, but Manchester United as a club as a whole. And I think he, he learned a lot off of that from Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest, who I, I think is a big father figure in his career. I've mm-hmm. spoken to many players that have played under him, uh, played with him and you're either in his camp or not there's no grey area with Roy King it's black or white with him and, and that's why I really like him I think he's a very honest guy he was a, a, a dreadful player to play against but someone that I would have on my team number one position he would it would be him but my, my big question for, for Roy King is that he should still be in the game I, I, I really don't want to see him on TV doing interviews because he has so much to offer but speaking about this before, like Sir Alex Ferguson, who had to move with the times, who understood that players were a different generation than what we grew up with, and they can't take bollockings or they, 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 they can't take certain scenarios or situations or adversity the same way that our generation did. I'm not saying that we're much stronger than 
the modern generation. Just the way it was. It's just the way it was. And I think Roy Keane has found that hard to adjust to the modern generation. And you can still hear it in his team talks or his TV interviews where he's calling out De Gea now, rightfully so this week, saying I would have wait, waited for him in the car park and swung at him. And that's just who Roy Keane is. And he spoke like that with his I think he's destroyed De Gea. I want to say the last few games, I think he's, <laughs> you know, when you've got a player like that, and you're, even though you're, you know, De Gea has had some fantastic seasons, he's done incredibly well all in all. When you've got a player like Keane, you, gotta, you, you must hear it. It's coming at you. Somebody's telling you this information that Keane has slaughtered you on TV. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, and I think uh, that that's playing on De Gea's mind right now. But I mean, I, no, I mean, it, it must. You look at Keane, you know, and, and the way he these guys, you know, dealt with his teammates, right, and how hard it was to be a teammate of Roy Keane, despite the fact that he's this great player, great leader. Either you're with him or you weren't with him. But when he was in Ireland playing for Ireland, you know. Um, not the same talent. Some real good teams, mind you, he played with, but not the same talent as, as, as United. Was he a different character at all when he played for Ireland than, than he was perhaps when he landed up beside Beckham and, and Scholes, etc.? Keane's relationship with his country is, is an interesting one. And, you know, it's something that we kind of delve into in the book a little bit. Firstly, in, in terms of the football thing, but as a result of the football thing, just kind of from a social perspective, like... Keane is the only footballer that I know. Like, I remember watching the game when I was a kid and, and thinking, this is astonishing. Um, it's a roundabout way of answering your question, but uh, it was 1996 and, and Ireland were drawn in a World Cup qualifying group with Iceland. And it's funny, you're talking about the way how, how things are different now in terms of that football landscape. Mick McCarthy was the Ireland coach at the time, but Keane had just won the double with United. You know, it was 96 and... Um, they, they'd obviously pegged back Newcastle. It was very, you know, it was an exhaustive season, really. You know, even just emotionally, um, to, to get over that finish line and then follow it up with another FA Cup success. And Ireland didn't qualify for the European Championships that summer, but they they kind of went on this tour. The plan was to go on this tour to America and in, in Boston and play at Foxborough Stadium with a couple of other teams, and it was just a, a money making thing, you know. And Keane had agreed with McCarthy that he would go and captain the side on this tour. And obviously, he just kind of says it, and probably he says it and, and says, oh, like, I shouldn't have said that. I'm like, I'm knackered after a season. And what, what happens is he, he doesn't end up going on, on, on that tour. There's a bit of drama with McCarthy. But the next time he plays for Ireland is, is against Iceland at Lansdowne Road in a World Cup qualifier. And there was a media campaign done by a tab- tabloid journalist in Ireland before who urged the fans to show how they felt about Roy Keane not playing for the country in the summer at a Mickey Mouse tournament. And they booed him. Every time he touched the ball for the first 10 minutes of that game, I remember watching it vividly. It's stuck in my memory. They booed Roy Keane, the, the man who's just won a double, his second double at Manchester United in three seasons. The guy who's playing at sweeper during this game because of his abilities as a footballer and they just have to throw him in and he has the technical know-how to actually play that position. And he's booed. And this is, you know, the Ole Ole Brigade, right? We've got the greatest support in the world, all that. And here he is being booed by those fans. And I, and I always think at that moment... He, how that must how that must sit with you as a as a guy who's given so much for your country, who has undergone so much disappointment underage with your country, being left out of squads and really, really ruthless sort of situations. You know, he was brought on one underage trip by Morris Setters, famously. Um, and Setters brought uh, seventeen guys to play this underage game. And uh, he tells Keane before the game kicks off, Roy, uh, as the team is warming up, Roy, go behind the, the goals and pick up the balls. 
and he was cut from that team. He was he was number 17 and he didn't even get a second of action. So uh, then to be booed against Iceland in a World Cup qualifier, like Keane's got a difficult relationship with his country. And, you know, I, I just think even even now, you know, there's kind of a love him or hate him type thing. And this is the greatest player that's ever played for the country, right? I mean, it's it's a just it's not even close. Um, and, and underage, there was always that tension with him. Um, it, it, it even progressed to... So, like, Keane's breakout year was 1991. That was a season that culminated with an FA Cup final for Nottingham Forest against Tottenham, which they, which they lost. But Roy Keane cost £47,000, right? That was the deal between Nottingham Forest and Cove Ramblers. And it was, 20, it was 20 grand up front, and it was another 20 grand when Keane made 20 appearances for Nottingham Forest, which he did by Christmas. So Cove Ramblers received 40 grand by Christmas. And the reason that they had to wait for another seven grand was because he was waiting to make five senior appearances for his country. And they had to wait years for the rest of that seven grand because it took so long for Jack Charlton to cap him at senior level. Um, And, you know, there's also that stuff. You're kind of like, how did it take so long? You know, Ireland were going through a European Championship qualification at that stage. They, they They were struggling to win games. And Keane was ripping it up for Forrest. He was a real jack-in-the-box. He was scoring goals. He was, he was just this, this shiny new object that Brian Clough had found that the British press were absolutely adoring. And still it took Charlton until the end of that domestic season to cap him. And, you know, it, it, it just made no sense. It was, you know, it was clear going by Charlton's comments throughout that season that he, he hadn't seen Keane play. It took him until the FA Cup final to actually, I think, go see him in, in person because it was Morris Setter's job to go watch players. And it was all this weird, you know, amateurish sort of setup in terms of the Irish senior team at that time. And, and Keane is kind of lost in that sort of valley. And, and then even with Charlton, Charlton's the first person to play him in that deep role where really, you know, Keane found it hard in those early, in early, those early days because there was a freedom under Clough to get forward. It's a freedom to play basically as a kind of a somewhere between an eight and a ten. And now under Charlton, he was very much a number six. And, um, you know, it was, it was a difficult transition for him. Obviously, the type of game Ireland played at that stage was a long ball. There was, it, the game kind of bypassed midfield a lot. He was too, you know, it was a target man and a smaller guy up top. You, you know, you get put crosses into a box completely at odds with the Clough, um, patient, possession-based approach. Um, you know, very, very, you know, uh, thought out. Charlton did the complete opposite. So it was difficult for Keane early days. And even in that 94 World Cup, you know, which turned out to be the only World Cup that he, that he played in, that was the type of role that he had. So it's weird. His career is, is filled with these, you know, from an from international perspective, you know, almost moments. You know, it, it was an almost moment in, in 94 when it was the end, really, of that Charlton team and Keane kind of found himself part of it and they were knocked out in a, in, in a, in a knockout round against Netherlands. That was the end, really, of Charlton at that stage. They failed to get to 96. They failed to get to 98, even though he was injured anyway. And then, obviously, 2002 was its own situation. So, um, from an Irish perspective, it's it's kind of very, very nuanced and difficult. But it's been that way for a long time with Keane. And that's a very exhaustive and boring answer to your original question. Sorry, Charms. <laughs> I always find it amazing though when you hear about these these great iconic players and how they're not necessarily beloved by their their countries back home, you know, despite the, the ability and the talent. I always find that fascinating. Do you think though? I mean, looking back at his career and obviously with United, he became the icon. He won the trophies, but was his happiest moments as a footballer back at Forest? Do you think? Um, 
I think with the benefit of hindsight, um, I think Keane, <laughs> of all the moments, and you kind of talk as, as football fans, of all the moments that you'd love to be a fly on the wall for, the moment when Keane goes and sits in an office opposite David Gill and Alex Ferguson, and Ferguson tells him that this is the end, you're gone. Um, I think that it, it's almost like a moment where someone takes a mask off and reveals themselves to be, it's, it's almost like the end of Tootsie, um, you know, where it's like, oh, look, I'm, I'm actually a bloke all along and this has been a complete setup. Um, a because, I, yeah, I, I, like, I, I, I think that, I think there's a, there's a song by, by an Irish band called Whipping Boy. They've, they've, they've got a song called uh, We Don't Need Nobody Else and there's a lyric in it. It's a, obviously it's a song about these kind of, this kind of relationship, a toxic relationship. And, you know, the, the girl in the relationship says, you know, you know, I, you know, uh, that really hurt. And the, the response is, yeah, and you thought you knew me. And, you know, I always think of, of that line in that context for that meeting between Keane and Ferguson. Keane thought that that relationship was built on something. And he thought that it was, it got to the point where it was different. So he could behave in certain ways and he could, you know, kind of be an all-encompassing presence in that club. And then Ferguson said, yeah, and you thought you knew me. And Ferguson's a manager of a club and he's ruthless. And it doesn't matter if you're Roy Keane or if you're David Beckham or before that, if you're Steve Bruce or Brian Robson or Jim Layton, all of these guys, it, it was a similar experience. And I think Keane, having, having experienced that, looks back on his time with Clough and looks back at three seasons of unconditional love and support when, you know, it was obviously the end of Clough's career. You know, and, and it, you know, that was a really accelerated decline for Clough in that 92-93 season. But, you know, Clough gave Keane the freedom that he needed as a young man in, in a new city away from his family. He was, you know, he's very, very tight with his family unit in Cork. He allowed himself the time to go back there very regularly and to keep up that contact, which he knew was important for him. Um, at the end of his first season with Nottingham Forest, Keane, who's obviously fortunes because it's, the Irish setup, and now he'd proven everyone great, you know, proven everyone cor uh, incorrect by like uh, impressing for an English team. So now his reputation completely dramatically changed in the underage setup in Ireland. Um, at the end of his first season for Forest, he was due to captain the Irish youth team uh, at the World Championships. And Brian Clough phoned Jack Charlton up and he said, Keane's not going. And Charlton, you know, throws a big fit and says, what do you mean he's going to captain, captain our U team and it's going to be a massive experience and he's integral to the side? And Clough says, I don't care. He's had a long season and he's not going. And he played, I think it was 42 games. He'd started 42 games for Forest that season and it culminated with an FA Cup defeat uh, in the final against Tottenham. And, and he obviously was a bit knackered. And Clough stepped in and he had the difficult conversation with, with, with Charlton and gave him that freedom to go back and be with his family. He'd had this dreamlike first season in English football, and he played at Wembley, and you know he was he was he was just this, the, the best version of himself. And Clough said, "You know what you do now? You go back to your family, you enjoy yourself." And kind of Clough did that repeatedly over those three seasons, and there was a trust there. Keane knew not to step too far over that line, or he'd get an absolute clatter, and. You know, there was there was there was certainly the right level of discipline, but there was a right level of trust. And I think the way that things ended for him at United, and the way that Ferguson kind of took that mask off and revealed himself to him, 
I think Keane will look back on those days under Clough and say, he he never bullshitted me. He never he was never anything other than himself. And that counts for something in football. That, you know, it's a ruthless environment at the best of times. Uh, you know, meet a lot of guys who are your best friend one minute and your worst enemy the next. And, you know, that goes for managers as well. And, you know, don't get me wrong. He had three seasons with Clough and 12 and a half with Ferguson. So God only knows what would have happened to him if he had 12 and a half seasons under Brian Clough. I'm sure he, he, he would have had to get medically examined <laughs> and had to see a therapist for the rest of his, of his life. Um, so there's, there's that element to it as well. The, 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 this, the, the period with Clough was short and it was sweet. And, you know, it was almost fleeting. And it's like any relationship, sometimes those are the ones you look back on with, through rose-tinted glasses a little bit versus the longer, tenuous, tension-filled, dramatic relationship that he had with Ferguson that didn't end very well. Um, but I think that, that because of that experience at United and the way things ended for him, it's, it's completely tainted his, the way he looks at that club now. It's completely tainted the way he looks at a guy who signed him and was such a close ally for him for a long period versus the Forest memories that have always re- kind of retained their sweetness and have always retained that sort of almost innocence. You know, the guys he played with, um, you know, the, the, the Stuart Pierces and, you know, the Des Walkers and, and the Teddy Sheringhams and, you know, the Ian Wones. Like he's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that He's still really, really tight with Sean Dyche and Ian Wan and, um, you know, these guys at Burnley, you know, who, who he's known for three decades. So, you know, I, I think that, that that period at Forest ha- has only become more warm for Keane since he, ha- he, since he underwent that sort of traumatic experience with Manchester United and that sort of separation, which, which I don't think he's ever really got over, to be honest. Yeah, it really is one of the most intriguing characters we've ever seen in English football, for sure. It should be a great read. Keen Origins coming out in August, uh, so next month. Uh, oh, and how can uh, people find the book? Uh, well, probably for North American audiences, that the best ways is through Book Depository. So just go onto their website and, and uh, you'll see a, a shiny little cover. And, um, you know, in terms of physical copies, it's probably unlikely um, that there'll be physical copies in, in your kind of indigos and all that sort of stuff in, in, in Canada imminently. Hopefully that will change. Uh, the, the sort of process at the moment is, is a slightly uh, difficult one. Uh, but probably your, your best bet is to, is to just go through your online sources and, um, you know, various, various, of various uh, usual outlets will sort you out with copies. So just a Google search of the book will probably um, will send you in the right direction. Well, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I can't wait to read the book, and I uh, certainly ask our audience to give it a whirl as well. Owen O'Callaghan, thanks so much, mate. We'll chat to you real soon, I hope. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Owen. I really appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, it should be a great read, eh? And, I mean, you boys, as you mentioned, played against Roy Keane, and he had that imposing presence about him. You know, obviously... As a footballer, he was brilliant, right? But was that almost secondary to the uh, the the you know Führer, the personality he, he exuded? Well, they went hand in hand. They went really well together, obviously, as a player. Um, management and dealing with players, <clears throat> like Dietz was talking about, is a different thing altogether. Um, but yeah, he's um, he was a driving force every single game, and you know when you got a team that's Many of the ones uh, I was playing against him were you're going in there to United or even playing them at home. <clears throat> and like I said, they're just a slew of superstars. But the level and standard <clears throat> of play that they kept and even before they went out on the field um, 
was impressive. Was really impressive. He was the leader of that team. You could just tell from the no time. question about it. But there was others as well. But they weren't quite, you know, maybe not quite as vocal in the in the tunnel, for instance. Uh, but when you look at some of the center backs, Steve Bruce and Pallister and these types of guys too, were incredibly good he, characters. He didn't just too. talk the talk. He walked the walk as well. He, he right. wasn't a guy that was giving it large one in the tunnel or on the field. He backed it up, and that's what I liked about him. He played the game in a way that. Mm-hmm. Everyone should play the game. He competed. Because at the end of the day, you walk over that white line to win the game. And that's what he wanted to do at his very best. And I wish I played with a lot of guys, more guys like that, that weren't just picking up a wage check. They were going out there to win the game. And from guys that uh, that played with him at the international level, like Noel Quinn, uh, Robbie Keane, people like that, they said it, it was like that in a five-a-side or six-a-side game with him as well. Mm-hmm. He wanted to compete at everything. Otherwise, he just thought it was nonsense. And I think that's where he rubs up people the wrong way, where if you're not into it and you're not doing it at its highest quality, whether it's going for a run, whether it's painting a painting, whether it's reading a book, whether doing it, he's one of those guys that you have to do it with such perfection and you have to buy into it and do it at your very best Otherwise, it's nonsense to him. He, he doesn't see it the same way as doing it half fast. But it's more than just effort, right? You have to do it as well. So it's all one thing, trying really hard. We can all try it. But he, ex- he demanded perfection from his teammates too. The best. That, and that was when the issues perhaps arose, that not yep. everyone can do that every single week. Mm-hmm. Only, only the, the truly elite can. Now, being at United, he's surrounded by elite players every week, right? Ireland, not so much. Certainly later in his... Uh, yeah, his different stint. styles too, like yeah. Owen was talking about. You had a, a picture you showed us, Deitch, on your phone. I'm assuming it's your, your screensaver of uh, a, a young, <laughs> ha- my, ha- hairy yeah. Danny Dicchio in combat with Roy Keane. In my old football picks, yeah. I just found. I, I knew I had one of him somewhere because my, my young, not my, my middle son, Franco, was a big Man United fan. So he was going through some old photos and he showed me that one. It's great. Can we get that on the, uh, one of our feeds, Jeff? My hair's not too good in that one. It's right now as we speak. <laughs> well, that's that's brilliant. One. Oh, it's a different yeah. one, is it? Is that is that um is that Teen Wolf Dickio? Yes, yeah, Teen Wolf Dickio. Yes, it is. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> it's a great picture, though, isn't it? Yeah. It is. What's the You're chasing them. You must have certain pictures that are your favorite from your footballing careers, I imagine, right? That mm-hmm. you know, maybe you frame them. What's your favorite picture? Actually, mine with Keen is actually one one of my favorite. Where's yours? Pictures. Um, I don't know. I have to find it. Hanging the bedroom wall, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you know. Honestly, when, when I retired, I didn't have any football pitchers in my place for close to ten years. I think that's amazing, isn't it? You had some in your basement, no? When we came up, well, that was after Sophie decided. She's like, "Yeah, let's put them up somewhere. Let's put okay, put them up in the basement. I'll never see them." I actually find it very no. <laughs> the company won't see these, so let's actually, put them down there. I find, you're right. I find it weird. Like even when I was playing, if I'd walk into a fellow professional's place and he's got pictures of him everywhere in his attire, and that would be weird. It to is me. a but bit odd. I'm with now, you. Like even my kids, they want to see pictures or photos, so they frame pictures right. in the basement just of when I was playing. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. It's kind of okay. So so Craig, a so you, memory. There's one yeah. of you and Keen that's one of your favorites. Do you remember specifically from what game? What was the picture? Um, I think it was from a 1-1 game. 
And what was, what was the shot? Remember, the it was shot? A, well, he was he's sliding in, and he just gets a hook on it. I remember the, I actually remember the ball. I, I don't remember who played it, but it was a softball over, and he was running, chasing in from 20, 25 yards out, just trying to get it on the half volley before it went out of play for a goal kick. And I didn't think I had any shot. And he was like, and he was like, well, I probably should have come for it. And then he's like, he just nicked it, but he just put it straight into my, into into hands. my hands. Yeah. So that's one that stands out. Is that your favorite footballing picture? Must be a gold cup memory. That no. sits there somewhere. Yeah. I don't have a favorite one. No? They're all, yeah. I like them. I like them all. What about you, Deej? Do you have one that stands out? <laughs> I think you have different, like, memories. favorite memories from each club or, like, country where you played in Gold Cup. I really love there's a there's a picture of my first goal for TFC where we're kind of celebrating but all the cushions are coming down and whoever took the the, the photograph is at a great angle because he's kind of got like a uh, three quarters of the stadium but players involved fans going crazy I have that oh, framed have it? I won so, it at some whilst won it it's a really you cool want to call it winning like I'm not sure but how it was it's like, signed by you too. Is it? It was, a, it was a raffle or something way back, what, 2009 least, or something. Worth at least a loony now. I forget where I got it. I was, I, <laughs> I was given it at some you event. You said toony. Yeah, say I, I was like, ah, it's dropped thanks. Since COVID. And that's over his bed. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that is a little bit weird, yeah. But in fairness, my wife put it there, so. Oh, it's even better. <laughs> yeah, I haven't got any pictures I enjoy. Um, yeah, come, Dan, we, you? I have one with Look Bruce Grobler when I was a kid. Do you really? Yeah. Dad, are you in, in that picture? stands pick? at Empire Stadium oh, in Vancouver. That's cool. <laughs> Have you seen that picture? No, I haven't. I'll show that's it. the offense out. That's the offense. Okay. How young are you in the picture with Bruce? Oh, young. He just walks off out of the set. All right. See you, Craig. Shams, can we, can, us. can we like, ask your old man if he can give us a, a younger picture of you in your rugby kit? <laughs> oh, God. I'd I, love I'm, to I'm, see that. Who knows oh, what? I want a picture of Shams in his rugby <laughs> Beautiful. That that will go above my bed. <laughs> Twice a day. That's a good one, yeah. Is that Gold Cup? Is that Gold Cup? Gold Cup when you won it? Or was that? That's a great picture, yeah. Is <laughs> the mullet out? Oh, that's sexy beast. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a, that's a great chat, though. Really interesting. And one of the most intriguing, fascinating personalities in world football, Roy Keane. Well, listen, as promised, we'll get to some listener questions uh, to conclude the show today. Uh, Dan, you are going to be the, uh, the question master. We need the extra microphone, which I wasn't able to hook up. But Jonathan Blackburn, at, and he's been always tweeting us, and he went on a bit of a rampage. Jonathan, thanks for all the uh, all the interaction. Uh, but this one's a little bit for Craig, and it says: Now that West Ham have ensured Premier League safety, will they once again shoot themselves in the foot by laboring under the delusion of the West Ham way by sacking Moyes and going for a flash manager who will not fit the prosaic rea- reality of the club's means? I'm not young, and I've heard people bang on about the West Ham way, the pure football and bits and bobs all my life. But I've never seen it. The Academy. That's yeah. what they used to call West Ham. Yeah. And I've still yet to see it in all my years playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a really good point because everybody still talks about it, don't they? Um, the West Ham Academy uh, produced some amazing players and did play a certain way. And everybody drops back and say the West Ham won the World Cup in 66, had three players. Mm-hmm. Um, 
John Lyle. I'm trying to think the last manager that would have played in a so-called West Ham way. I would think John Lyle, but it's it, it those days are gone. Is don't you think Deitch as far as playing? Yeah, I think especially for teams that uh, like Man I'm City's playing down, the West Ham. Yeah, I'm way, not saying uh, down the bottom of the league, but West Ham have kind of languished around the relegation zone mm-hmm. for the last couple of years, and it's tough for teams to play that way. Bournemouth played that way, but now look at there. Yeah. I mean, Harry, when Harry Redknapp came in and we had the likes of Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard and Joe yeah. Cole and Michael Carrick and so on, the style of play and DeCanio up top, Ile Berkovich, you know, there was, a, there was a good standard of, you know, a, a quality of play for sure. Yeah. Um, maybe not the levels it was in the 60s, but of course, but. It was it was a certain style of play that the fans were 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 happy with at that time. I think as well what the, the question is about consistency, and West Ham haven't had that consistency for a long, long time now. Where if you're bringing in a coach who has gone through the interview procedure and promised this way of football and this is how we're going to build the club, we're going to bring some youngsters in as well as bring some player signings in. That hasn't happened at West Ham because they've been chopping and changing head coaches all the time. So are they going to stick with Moyes again? I think they will. I really do. Are they going to back him in the market? He hasn't got a very good record in the market. He worked very well at Everton where he was on a, a limited budget there. He brought in a lot of players through the Everton system. So maybe that's how he sold it at West Ham. But West Ham's academy is starting to produce some players again. They've just recently lost a very, very good player from their 17s who's going to Bayern Munich. Um, so it's tough. Uh, we spoke about it with Brentford. A lot of teams are starting to think about getting rid of their academy teams now and just having an older academy team like the U23s and building from there. But West Ham is, is a bigger club than the likes of Brentford or other teams that we've spoken about. The academy is an is a important part of their club. But you have to have that, that link between your academy, your reserve team, your second team, and your first team. There has to be a clear pathway. There has to be a target for those players to try and reach. Declan Rice is a perfect example. He's come through the system. He's doing very well. They're possibly going to sell him for big, big money, or he's going to be their captain for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's consistency with that, within that club. That That's what's needed more than anything. Yeah, and, and I think that get a feeling from the question that the, that he's a Moyes fan and uh, should be given a chance. Um, I think so. I think, And I think the problem with West Ham too when he's going to chop and change and a lot of times they've chopped and changed at times to save themselves from relegation, you know, and bringing in managers like Allardyce and, and whatnot. So, Pellegrini. Yeah, yeah, Pellegrini. I mean, there's a guy that they, you know, he won a league title with Man City and he's a fantastic coach, but never a fit for uh, no. West Ham. But there's also a lot of distrust within the fan base, right? It's very hard for them to win those guys over because of the stadium issue and what they were promised and what was actually delivered, which is not really a football stadium per se. No. It just hasn't worked out so far. Now, a bit of success will change that, Mm -hmm. but they've got to go a long way to win over those fans because that is an embittered fan base. Yeah, it is. Uh, They're after their ownership. They're not happy with Sullivan and Gold and Brady. and Yeah, um, because they were sort of promised a big... Spend and move stadium, more revenue, and this, not, and then the other. But first thing is, uh, they came out of this uh, pandemic break 
and uh, I picked up a fair few points and really did did well because there was a time where they didn't. They, they were the first couple of games I saw they were toothless. I couldn't see them scoring, couldn't see them winning games, couldn't see them picking up any points, and they really did get around Moyes. And it looked as though, seen by the reaction of some of the players, they're happy that he's there. So we'll see. But some consistency in the club, and I don't think they, yeah, the West Ham Academy way and what it was back in the Ron Greenwood days and John Lyle days, I, I think that's something of, of the past for now. Okay, we got two more. Uh, what's going on? This is Jim Turfry, uh, K Town Turfry. So I think it's either Kingston or Kitchener. What's going on with David De Gea? Should Man U start De Gea? I don't know. Actually, actually, actually that's how Alex Ferguson is. Remember? Is it? What is it? De Gea. Yeah. All right. He's Spanish. Okay. Should Man U start Dean Henderson next season if De Gea's form doesn't improve? Ooh. It's been an issue for not just the last few games or this season. It's been two years now that this guy's had very inconsistent form. But don't forget, he was also considered arguably the best goalkeeper in the world, what, three or four years <laughs> yes, ago now. Exactly. But what's happened to this guy? He, he seems to have just fallen off a cliff. Yeah. There's no confidence there because, I mean, that game over the weekend yeah. was an absolute, just a farcical display of goalkeeping. I think he's fighting demons at the moment, and every goalkeeper goes through it. Um, he's under a microscope like nobody else. Uh, and he knows criticisms coming from former players like Keane. He would have heard that. And it's how you deal with it, and and you just try to, you try to get through every minute, you try to get through every game, you try to think, okay, can I get a string of three, four games without making an error, and you just work on it from there because football's fickle, fans are really fickle, and uh, you got to get yourself through it, and it's a battle, and sometimes you need to be taken out of that spotlight, take a step backwards to take a couple forward as well, and and uh, that would have to be decided by. The manager and himself and and working on his mental state as well where he is at this present moment because he's not in the right right place. But he will be again. But you have this youngster, well, younger player, Dean Henderson, having an incredible year at Sheffield United, which is not Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Is it a gamble to, to bring him back from loan and say either compete with De Gea or, or, or sell De Gea? It's De Gea. And- <laughs> <laughs> You know what? It's, it's, it's nothing wrong with having competition for spots. You got you have to see that. We even saw that at Burnley over the few years when Keaton, Keaton's coming in and then Pope's come in, and they, they've had terrific goalkeepers there. Um, so the competition for spots is not a bad thing. And being out of the lineup, if that ever happened to De Gea for the next you know month or so during a season, that's not the end of the world either. They've, they've also got Romero, who's Argentina's number one, who's when he's come in in, in cup competitions or wherever it is, Europa, mm-hmm. has played very, very well. Mm-hmm. But Ole, as most first-team head coaches do at the beginning of the season, decide on their number one. De Gea has been their number one for many, many years now. He's broken Schmeichel's record over the past couple of weeks for appearances as well. But I was speaking about this with one of our goalkeepers at uh, TFC today, and he was saying the same thing. He thinks demons are in his head. He he thinks that he's at an age now where he's never going to get back to himself two, three years ago. And as a goalkeeper, that's very, very, very dangerous. And this is a younger goalkeeper talking to me about this today, and I was kind of thinking about it afterwards. And as a player... You can get over those demons pretty quickly because a performance can be 
crowded or shaded by other players within your group as mm-hmm. a goalkeeper you can at least work hard you can yeah like you can work run, hard run, run, and run, you run. can you can make a tackle you can put things right you can have a shot at goal to start building your confidence again but as a goalkeeper your position is highlighted so much that any detail that you do wrong is red flagged straight away and even though there's no fans in the stadium at the moment i think the spotlight is on him massively and maybe it is time for Ole just to pull him out of, of the firing line, just to mm-hmm. say, look, take a breather. I still believe in you. Mm-hmm. Let's give this boy a, a chance in the FA Cup, which I think Romero should have played in the FA Cup because he's played in most of the mm-hmm. Cup games this yeah. year. It was just It's just one of those scenarios that goalkeepers go through. I've said it's the, the most difficult position in the eleven because you're, you're isolated. You're by yourself. Mm-hmm. Your positives, saves are always applauded. But your mistakes are always exaggerated by. Yeah. by All right, so, so Craig, when you played, then say you had a, a bad patch, some bad games, confidence is waning a little bit. Yeah. Would you prefer a game where you made two or three amazing saves, or a couple of games where you were just safe, where you didn't make mistakes? Yeah, it wasn't too just safe. That would build safe, your confidence. Yeah, more. just you're happy to go out there and not get any shots. Although I didn't play for many teams. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's worse when you're losing like four or five every game, and you're yeah. and you're lacking in confidence. But uh, it's 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 a battle, and the thing is, it eats you up every minute of the day, every minute of the day. Well, it's uh, actually a good segue. Doug Simonite, hey man, thank you. He actually plays in a over thirty five league as a tender, as he's a keeper. Uh, and he said, and this is a good segue, why aren't more keepers, more ex-keepers managers? I mean, we're supposed to be the generals back there. Well, there there is. How um, many in the Prem? Nuno Santo. Yeah. Yeah, Wolves. Um, Are the goalkeepers in the Prem? I, I mean, so. back in the day, Gino was off. What was Mourinho? And obviously, he didn't yeah, play high level. Was he yeah. a keeper though, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. I don't think he played like I can't even a, a hear big count. level. But he didn't play in goal at uh, uh, level, didn't at he? level he got to. I think he was okay. like a midfielder. Or something. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No, there's, not, there's only Nuno in the, in the Prem. Yeah. I know of. But there are there are a few of them around. Is it because you're all insane? Enough. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> you, you see enough crap in front of you for 20 yeah. odd years. The last thing you want to do is yeah, stay in the game. Yeah, like, exactly. I hate this game. like Neville Southall and just. Eat, 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 eat the pillows. <laughs> also, what also what I would say is that just for experience, the goalkeepers see the game a totally different way than a player, and it's no through no fault of their own. They're they're trained in a different way. They train by themselves for longer periods where we're doing a lot more tactical work. Um, not saying they're separated from the group but they're just this in such they're separated from the group. position <laughs> in fact well, it's an individual sport amongst a team sport yeah but we're including our keepers a lot more now even in possession drills because mm-hmm. at the younger age we want them to get more comfortable with their feet yeah um tactically we want them understanding where to be in certain sessions where before they were excluded so much it was basically a whistle at the end for the last 15 minutes of training to say, oh. hey, come across now. We're ready for you. Yeah. Where now, but now you look at you look how everybody's playing out of the back. I love the short goal yeah. kick now. So you can keep possession right away. You open things up, play through uh, blocks. I I love it. And uh, the way it, but yeah, we never played like that. You're just no. trying to kick the ball as far as you could. So maybe, maybe in the short term, you're going to see more goalkeepers become managers because – 
they're a little bit more tactically astute because of their inclusion in training and the tactical objectives, whether it be mm. in team talks and training sessions now. Maybe you see it because you're right. They see the game a lot from where they're standing from. So they have a good vantage point of, of viewing the game. But well, I would say they've been trained and coached a lot differently yeah. over the years than a, a, an individual player as a forward, a midfielder, a defender. So they know the nuances of what to do on the field. Mm-hmm. Where a goalkeeper knows exactly what to do anywhere in the 18-yard box, yeah. commanding his goal. Yeah, it's difficult because it, 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 when you're looking at the game, reading the game as we do from the back, for me to tell a forward to run into certain channels, yeah, I get, I kind of, you know, by watching it and knowing what players do, but um, not knowing that position or playing in it. You have to, to understand it. I think you have to, that's why it's so good to play in all positions, really to understand the nuances that each individual position has. And there are differences. Some players can't play on one side or the other. Some players can't play up top. It's a, you feel like a fish out of water. Well, I mean, if you're playing center back all of a sudden, everything's in front of you as opposed to thing, you know, so it's different, much different. We can get some, some, uh, pre old managers who were goalkeepers, John Burridge to, to, uh, Mentions in two weeks was apparently a manager at some point, right? I'm not saying a very good one necessarily, but Dino Zoff stands out as yeah. a yeah. successful yeah. one, right? Yeah. Um, Bruce Arena was a goalkeeper. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, he'd be a good one now, wouldn't he? I he was a lacrosse. He player. was a lacrosse player more than a. Was he really? Yeah, I think he's a textbook coach. Really. Nigel Mal- Atkins was Maldini's a goalkeeper. Nigel was a Atkins. goalkeeper. Atkins. Who? Mr. Cat Maldini. Oh, Cesare Maldini. Yeah, he was a goalkeeper. Okay. Um, so you, uh, Brian Gunn, Yulin Lobotegui was a goalkeeper. Oh, really? Yep. Um, there's a few, but Kevin Blackwell. Yep. Lower division. coach to Neil Warnock. Yep. But not many. I mean, it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe insane as they are, they're too smart to get into management. Simple as that. Just get out. You can't pundit. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a goalkeeping coach. Get out and eat the That's pillows. a pretty easy job, isn't it, being a goalkeeping coach? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? No. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's not. It's not. You're just defending well, your keeper coaches. That's what you're doing. Nah, it's difficult. I know you yeah. yelled at by, by the manager. Well, it's physically well, difficult as well. all these different yeah. things to it, being a goalkeeper How's it physically coach? difficult, being a goalkeeper coach? You have to smash balls at goalkeepers. Oh, you got to yeah. kick the ball a few times yeah, yeah. a day. Yeah. Tough. You don't, Sounds like, pretty you don't have like a tennis ball machine, although they do have them. Yeah, they've just got one at two. And you're the one sending in the free kicks and stuff, aren't you? spins on them. Yeah, yeah. Launch it in the air. Really? Like Free kicks, corner kicks. Yeah, basically like a tennis ball. Modern technology. Oh my God, yeah. eh? Robots out there playing pretty yeah. soon. But when you, some of the best ones I've ever had were the guys with the service. Yeah. Good service. You could still be a goalkeeper coach. You considered it? You know, if, let's say Free Prime doesn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the, the what you say, Shams. We're having a meeting after this, fellas. Uh, it would have to be with the right people that I enjoy being around. Okay, like you mean like elite players, <laughs> <laughs> or coaches, or coaches? Yeah, yeah. You a good team. It'd be it'd be difficult for Craig because he's not in shape at the moment. So I'm offended now. I don't mean that. Right, in a way, I think you look great. I think you look great. Thanks, buddy, yeah. But you I'm haven't great. you haven't pinged a ball for how long? Oh, I'd be good for 10 minutes. <laughs> Before his hamstring or quad falls yeah. off, then his back will start playing havoc with him. Yeah. I'm being serious. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the and then mount- your goalkeeper coach is useless because then you've got to get somebody else in and the players are like, well, no, I've got to be over here. And You're right. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about that, coaches, but now I think about it. I think of Roy Hodgson. I think there's an athlete right there. <laughs> no, yeah, you have to be in great shape to play and coach football. 
different goalkeeping coach is well, it's totally different than totally, the head coach. I'll, yeah, head yeah. And the, and coaches or for out players are just you're yeah, just picking yeah. the ball, you're not running around, you're yeah. not like you know, Although dropping it, down it, and, even as an out player or as a coach teaching out players, if you can do a demonstration and do it well, players respect that. Yeah. Sure. Don't they? And then you got some donor who's trying to tell you what to do. Never kicked a fucking ball in their life. Never played at any level, and they're trying to tell you to do something, or they try to do it for, and they just they fall over the ball. But he works with some. I can't imagine Jose Mourinho demonstrating free kicks. No, but he'll have a staff. Jose's having himself done. I could see him dribbling a ball and trying to free kick. Yeah, I think he fancies himself. Do you remember that old? (laughs) Do you remember that old story where is who's the assistant coach at Leicester now? Not Shakespeare. No, Colo Touré. Touré. When he first yeah. turned up at Arsenal. Yeah. And he two-footed uh, Arsene Wenger, who was going on a little dribble. <laughs> and the guys are like, that's unbelievable. <laughs> and Wenger was like, fuming, but he signed him the next day yeah. because he just loved these just competitive that. There's, there's Wenger, who's like gangly six yeah. foot four. And Can't really play. An athlete. <laughs> yeah, going, yeah. Going two foots in. <laughs> takes him out. Well, hey, if they're going to play. <laughs> yep, sure. Uh, exactly, right? going to play. McGarth, I think I mentioned this before, going to watch TFC train don't back in the day. Don't dwell Mo, on the ball. Mo would be just like, just, Mojo. just ha- playing, yeah. just enjoying himself out there to hell with coaching. Oh yeah, he used to go down and take shots at the goalies yeah. and the goalkeeper coach. Still the best player in the field until yeah. Vicky arrived. Holger used to do that too. Orsiak used to come down and take shots. <laughs> Not them kind of shots. Did you have a two-foot Mo? Two-foot Mo? Yeah. He didn't play any games actually. Oh, did he? just he? used to like strike... He used to interrupt. We had two goalkeeping coaches at, at the time in the first year, Carmen Sacco and Eddie Kehoe. And, both uh, athletes. Both athletes. and um, Both midgets. And they used, <laughs> Mo used to go in and interrupt their actual goalkeeping session and just say, look, I'm going to take 10 strikes from the edge of the box here and smash them in the top corner just to give the keepers that little bit of confidence. Yeah. And then he'd come back to our training session. Really? Well, what was a training session? I don't know back in those days, but... <laughs> yeah. But back in those days, I mean, you knew who Mo was, obviously, as a footballer. You remember him yeah. playing, but I bet not many of the TFC players no. knew him as a footballer. No, but you do a little bit of reading and figure out. Pretty you think so, yeah. yeah. He played a little bit in the MLS as well. He won, yeah. the, won the title Kansas there at City, Kansas right? City. So yeah. guys, older guys would have known mm-hmm. of him playing in the league, but mm-hmm. I don't think they would have known his history in Glasgow. No, not at all. You and Robbo, and that's about it, probably, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Playing for both teams in Glasgow is not a good uh, option. <laughs> not ideal. All right, guys, uh, I guess we're out of time. Yeah, well, thanks for the feedback and the, and the questions from Excellent. the audience. Brilliant. Keep them coming, because uh, mm-hmm. it's a good segment, and it helps us uh, get through a show without having to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks to Owen O'Callaghan. Great chat today. Um, the book, Keen origins coming out august the 14th so keep your eyes peeled for that one wonga jc deach and craig thank you very much cheers for listening planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 